Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you and all of your study. All right, so we're going to be in Matthew today, and Jesus is going to give a warning to some cities. And the main part of our discussion tonight is the idea of repentance. How do you conceptualize repentance? How did Jesus conceptualize repentance? And last week, of course, we got canceled because of the weather. And I was telling Marie, I said, you know, I think maybe God knew something I didn't because today is Rosh Hashanah. So Rosh Hashanah is the Jewish New Year. And it's a time that you blow the shofar and you wake everybody up. It's a time to bring people back in repentance so that you can have the Day of Atonement, which is 10 days from now. And so I said, well, maybe perhaps God actually has a syllabus up in heaven that he's following, and he wanted the lesson on repentance to be on Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, instead of last week. So who knows? God doesn't tell you these things until after they've passed. So anyway, so perhaps there's something about God in this that as we talk about repentance, but I just pray that on a holiday that is calling people back to God, to turn them back to God, that we'll be able to see something in the text about repentance and that it can speak to our own lives. Because clearly, I think it's still an important topic. So, woe to you. And of course, this is Sea of Galilee Part 20, as we've been moving through this whole series, looking at everything that Jesus has been doing around the Sea of Galilee. And one quick announcement, we are going to be opening up this Bible study to others who would like to join a weekday, midweek Bible study. So we're going to do the Gospel of Matthew. And as I mentioned, we're not going to go into every detail of the Gospel of Matthew because it's only 10 weeks. But we're going to study the Bible using Matthew as our guide to look at some of the things that will show up. They kind of help us understand our entire Bible, but Matthew is talking about them. So we'll, that's how I'm going to try to structure this, God willing. And it'll start at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. And it's going to be 10 weeks long, so that'll take us to the end of November, and then some sort of break or change of topic there. And the best place to sign up, of course, is our website, figtreeteaching.com. And if you go to the website, I'll give you a little screenshot right here. There's uh, right at the top of the website, you can see right next to Faith Lessons, it says Join Our Bible Study. So if you click that Join Bible Study, the page will open up for you to put in your information. The cost is zero, but it's going to act like you're purchasing something. This is the method that gets everybody loaded into the system as joining the class. 
So that would be the way, for those watching later on video, how you join the Bible study. For those who are in the current Bible study, you're on the list already, so we don't, you don't need to do that unless you want to just go check, check it out. Okay, so that's enough for our announcement that's coming up in a couple weeks in the study of Matthew. And um, first, I think it'll be week two, just as a little teaser. Ah, it blows my mind looking at the genealogy. You think the genealogy is some kind of test that God puts you through right when you're starting off the New Testament, but it's amazing uh, some of the symbolism that's inside of there. So you have that to look forward to. Okay, so one more trek around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, next week will be our final Sea of Galilee, so 21 parts. And this picture today is the synagogue at the village of Chorazin. You can spell it with a K. You can spell Chorazin with a C-H. I think some of our Bibles spell it C-H. We haven't talked much about Chorazin yet. There aren't any stories in the Bible that place Jesus there, but as we'll see today, this is one of the cities that he did most of his miracles. And it's just a couple miles up the hill from Capernaum. I'll show you a map later. But that's the synagogue there at uh, Chorazin. And we'll do a little bit more on Chorazin later, but if you want to turn in your Bible, you can go to Matthew 11, 20 to 24, only five verses long, and it's short, but there's a lot to unpack in there. Uh, I also know, because we're talking about repentance, that I'm waiting, as I was putting this together, I'm realizing I'm wading into a theological minefield. So I will probably step on somebody's doctrinal toes tonight um, as we're trying to go back in biblical studies to say what would they be thinking or hearing in the first century, and oftentimes our doctrines are developed later, and you can have—so it might seem like I'm violating a doctrine. I'm not intending to do that at all, but I'm sure I will at some point, and I apologize ahead of time. Um, so Matthew eleven twenty to 24, and this is where Jesus is going to give you a woe. It's a warning. Woe to you, three cities, Chorazin, Capernaum, Bethsaida. And the main function of this passage that we're going to talk about is the word repent. And I'm going to suggest that when we read this story in Matthew, we need to make sure that we're viewing it through the proper contextual lens of the word repent or repentance. And sometimes 2,000 years and a lot of church doctrine barnacles build up, so we have to go back and scrape some things off as we're looking at the word repentance. So to set this up, and this is going to be at the top of your handout, I want you to look at, there's two quotes, one from an early church father, John Chrysostom, and then the second one from Martin Luther, but they have to do with repentance. And when you read them, I think the first time I read them, I thought, well, that's not the way I think about repentance, but I think it's the way that maybe we should think about repentance, or at least one aspect of repentance. So I'll start with uh, John Chrysostom is somewhere around, let me see in my notes here, so latter half of the 4th century into the beginning of the 5th century. And he says this about repentance. 
He says, For this life is, in truth, wholly devoted to repentance, mourning, and wailing. Now, the mourning and wailing part we're not going to get into, but I think it's the idea, like Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. And that doesn't mean blessed are those who have bad things happen in your life. It's can you mourn the brokenness of the world? Can you mourn your own sin? Because if you can't mourn your own sin, how are you going to repent? So those who mourn their own sin are blessed by God because you recognize the reality of the way things are. Okay, uh, this life is wholly devoted to repentance, mourning, and wailing. And then he says, this is why it is necessary to repent, not merely for one to two days, but throughout one's whole life. And so what we're going to talk about today is the concept of repentance, but not just I repented and now I'm a Christian or I switched, you know, recognize God or see Jesus as my savior. And now I start going to church, but it's a lifetime of repentance. The base word for repentance in the Old Testament is to turn, that you're constantly evaluating your life and then making turns back towards God wherever, whenever you find yourself straying. So that's a whole life of repentance. We might use something like sanctification to talk about the concept of growing and changing, but John Chrysostom uses repentance. Okay, so that's one, a whole life of repentance. The second one is Martin Luther. So if you look down at the second quote that I have there, this, by the way, of his 95 theses that Martin Luther nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, this is number one. This is the top one. He says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So even Martin Luther is saying, look, your whole life is a, is a life of repentance. And I think we're gonna, what we're going to see in what Jesus is saying in this Matthew text is very similar to what's happening with Martin Luther, right? Luther was a reformer. Well, he was a protester first. He protested the Catholic Church. That's why we call ourselves Protestants. And then, but he was a reformer. He didn't want to start an entirely new denomination within the church. He wanted to reform the Catholic Church. That's what he thought he was doing. He wants the Catholic Church to repent, to turn back towards God, get your ways straight. So he's not looking for a change of religion. He's looking for to turn their ways. And so he's, he's reminding people that your whole life is learning and growing, and whenever you find yourself going off the path, that you turn back on the path. Now, of course, what we got out of that was a lot of division, but I think I can see, we'll see the same thing with Jesus. He's very much not suggesting to change religions. He wants them to stay in their religion and repent, turn back to God. So, okay. Those are two quotes, just to give you the idea, because we have to think about it conceptually, that repentance isn't just a one-time event, it's throughout our whole life, anytime we find ourselves going off the path, then we want to repent and turn back to God. Okay, so, woe to you. It's the three cities he's going to say this to, and when I think, when people read this, and I know I did at first, we tend to read these words as though Jesus is talking 
to a bunch of outsiders. You people over there, like Jesus showed up in Israel as a non-Jew, and then we're pointing out all their flaws. But that's not really the case, right? So we have to think about where he's at, where is he, where is he located as he's lecturing or denouncing these cities. And so I'm going to give you a very, it's a crude depiction, not crude meaning bad, but it's poorly made. But sometimes crude depictions work. So I tend to think of this. You have Jesus at the top and we're all the Christian followers, right? This is us. We're in. We're the Christians. We're in. And when we read this passage, woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, we think of them as them, you people over there, as if Jesus is saying, you know, he's pointing his finger from our group at those people over there. Anytime we make us and them, or we make people the other, it gets dangerous because you can minimize their humanity, and that's never good. But I want, I want to suggest that this, isn't, this is how we read it, but it's, I don't think it's what's happening. He's not an outsider pointing at some other group denouncing them. He's a reformer. Jesus is a reformer. He's speaking to his fellow, fellow Jews, religious Jews. They love God. They're just not walking the path correctly. And so he's going to show up, and some like his message, some don't. But I, this is how I think we read it. And what I want to do is suggest that if we change our, the way we read the story, then we may change the lesson we can derive out of it, the wisdom that sits in the middle of it, and this nugget of wisdom. So if we think about the context of first century and Jesus in those three cities, which are thoroughly religious Jewish cities, they're Orthodox Jews, they're Galileans, and they're practicing religious people. They believe in God. Many are looking for the Messiah. They love their Bible. They love God. They go to synagogue. They serve God. They confess their sins, uh, as w at least the ones they're aware of. They think they're growing down the correct path, at least in their mind. And then Jesus is going to show up into that, right? He shows up as one of the fellow Jewish religious leaders within Judaism. That's how they see him. So he's speaking his own language to his own people. And what he's going to do, um, my suggestion, is that he wants to get them headed in the proper direction. He doesn't want to start a new religion. He wants to get them to reform and change. And if you think about the zealots, we talked a lot about the zealots. They love Jesus. They want to make him his, their king, but for their own uh, wrong purposes. They love that Jesus can raise the dead. They hated that he wants you to forgive the Romans. They want a king, but they want a king that's violent, and Jesus isn't going to do that. So he's going to try to correct them and say, no, 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 don't go down that path of violence. So he's, he's critiquing them as an insider. And what I think we can get out of this is we have to think about if Jesus were to show up today, who would he critique? The sinners? Or might he critique the religious leaders? And when he showed up the first time, he critiqued all the religious leaders. Uh, so I think sometimes the critique is meant for us on this side of it, that instead of Jesus being, we're, we're behind him and everyone else is, it's those sinners over there. I think when we read this, 
as what if he's talking to us, not those other people? And so, are we living a life of repentance as we talk about repentance? Are we continually correcting our ways, confessing our sins whenever we see that we're going wrong, turning our walk back to God? Because if not, woe to you would be the message. Woe to you, church leaders, if you start down that path and don't repent from, of your ways, you might destroy the church. That's a critique, but it's a, repent, a critique of repentance. So I want us to do, for at least for today, think about this story, and then as we read it, understand the first century idea of repentance, and then think about it as if Jesus was talking to us. We use religious words assuming that the other people around us agree with the way that we conceptualize it, salvation or righteousness or whatever religious word, and repentance is one of them. So you always have to say, what do you mean by repent? What's, what's your conceptualization of repentance? Because that's going to drive how you read the story, and then it's going to drive what you get out of it. I think if we took a survey and everybody wrote down their conception of repentance, we would probably get some variances, and maybe we wouldn't have written down a lifelong process like Martin Luther says. Anyways, that's going to be our main point. So here's what I want to do. We're going to read it real quick. Matthew 11, 20 to 24, only five verses. Pay attention to the, his argument, and then we'll talk a little bit about first century, or at least in the Jewish mind, repentance. Okay, so verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. Now, that's key right there. They saw the power of God on display. Didn't hear stories about it. They saw it. But he's, why is he denouncing them? Because they did not repent. And of course, that's the word we have to wrestle with. What do we mean by repent? So, most of his miracles are in those three cities, and oddly enough, most of the miracles in the Bible aren't in those three cities, so he must have done a lot more than what's listed in the Bible. Okay, next verse. Here comes the woes. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Now, Tyre and Sidon, Old Testament cities that God isn't real happy with and judgment is coming. Okay, last here, verse 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Okay, there's our five sentences. It sounds, right, he's, and I'm going to suggest later, he's working in, he's dealing in hyperbole. He's, he's throwing a warning at them, and he's using overarching things like Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. He wants to wake them up, get their attention. Woe to you. Because if we think about this, 
we tend to think, at least I think, when I read this passage at first, I was like, oh, he's just going to punish everybody. Everybody who's living at that moment in those cities gets punished. But that's not how God works. He punish, He doesn't punish the city. And many of those people actually like Jesus, right? All of his, Many of his disciples come from those cities. So there has to be something going on here that's going to tell us something a little bit more than just there's suddenly judgment coming because they, they didn't like Jesus's message. That's what we'll get into. But let me show you real quick on a map. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. It's important to know these are all cities that are right next to each other. So let me go real quick to the Sea of Galilee. So right at the top of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. That's where Jesus moved to from Nazareth, moves over to Capernaum, was a a major city in that area, right on the trade route, so millions of people walked by it every year. You have Magdala down here, that's where Mary the Magdalene is from, and then Tiberias, a little further south, we mentioned, that's where Herod Antipas put his headquarters. So you have religious Jews to the north, the Roman seat of power is right there at Tiberias, and of course that whole thing we talked about, the zealots weren't real happy that Rome is there. And then, of course, we have these three cities right up here in that circle, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. So they're right next to each other. They would all know each other. They would interact with each other. If we go closer, a map closer, here's Capernaum right here. You have Chorazin sits up and up the mountainside, so you'd have to walk uphill. It's about two miles, I think to Chorazin, and then Bethsaida, just on the other side of the river, the Jordan River. So the question that I asked just a couple minutes ago, is everybody in the city rejecting Jesus as Messiah? Well, no, not everybody is. So I think there's more to his woe than just a simple, a flat condemnation, right? In fact, we've studied a lot on the zealots and if there's zealot-like tendencies, right, people who want him to be a Messiah, but they're looking for a different Messiah, Jesus, they don't want Jesus to pr promote for forgiveness. So it's like they could see him as Messiah, but not like his message. And we'll get into that when we talk about what does it mean to repent, to change your ways. So this, uh, the denouncing and the comment about repenting, there has to be more to this. And that's when we will try to pull some of that out of there. Let me, um, before we do that, let me just give you a real quick little, a brief overview of Chorazin, some things at Chorazin, since we haven't been there. For those of you who've traveled to Chorazin, you might remember everything is made of basalt, so it's black rock. Uh, I could show you 50 pictures, but it's all black rock, so you don't really get much out of this. This is the synagogue at, Capur at uh, Chorazin. That's pretty cool that they had um, had a synagogue there. There's another shot of the synagogue. And then something that's pretty cool they found archaeologically is this seat right here. That seat sits on the wall next to the Torah closet, and it's called the Moses seat. And this is the seat that in the synagogue, whoever was the honored guest that would do the reading would sit in that seat. So when Jesus stood up to read at the synagogue in Nazareth, he stood up from the Moses seat. Jesus says to his disciples, listen to the Pharisees because they sit in Moses' seat. 
So they found, now that's a replica of the Moses seat, but here's the real one in the Israel Museum. They look exactly the same. So when Jesus says they sit in Moses' seat, they actually found Moses' seats. So we know that that's something they still have in, in synagogues today. That's pretty cool uh, at Chorazin. One of the main industries at Chorazin was olive oil. So this, we're standing, the group that I'm with, we're standing inside a room that is an olive uh, oil processing room. And there's a number of them there. So they know olive oil was a big deal there at Corazon. What you see there, the big round stone, that crushes the olives. And then over here, we get to the Gethsemane, the press for oils. Gethsemane trans, uh, translates. Got is a is a oils no got is press shemanim oils so what happens is you crush the olives and then they're going to take the olives and they're going to put them in these little baskets and they're going to put them right on that circle and I'll show you a picture just to give you an idea you take the olive pulp after you've crushed them and you put them in those little bags that are they look like a beret, flattened beret. It's like a black bag. It's made out of like hemp or something like that. You, you put all the olives in there and you put a big rock on top of it. And in this picture, you can see they're trying to lever it down and it's going to squeeze all the remaining oil out of those olives. So you might have 10 bags stacked up that you're going to press down. So when you go back to this picture, you take those black uh, hemp bags full of the olive pulp, lay them there right on that round thing, set a olive press, a Gethsemane on top of it, and as it presses, the oil then descends down into these little runoff things, and it goes down into the ground where they catch the oil. So that's the oil press, but Corazon was known for its olive oil, and they know that through the archaeologically what they find there. Um, okay, Corazon. We don't know a whole lot about it. It seems to be have come around about 160 BC, so 160 years before Jesus. And there was, if you remember, uh, you have the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes, who tried to outlaw Judaism, essentially. And there was a revolt of a group called the Maccabees. They overthrew the Greeks. And for the first time in many years, Israel was ruling themselves. It's where we get the holiday Hanukkah. So in about 160 BC, there's a huge wave of immigrants that come from Babylon. They bring with them synagogue, rabbis, disciples. You don't find that so much down in Judea. They bring a different style of worship to Israel, and they remain up in the Galilee. And I think we can maybe even connect Jesus's woe to these freedom-loving people that moved back to their country to, because they were under the, finally under Israeli rule, and then the Romans show up, and they're not real happy about it. Olive oil, that's one of the main industries. And then what happened was, in 67 AD, the Romans destroyed Chorazin. Now, is that lead, does that go into the woe? If you are taking on zealot-like tendencies because you love the liberty of living not living under foreign rule, and then Rome shows up, is it possible that they're acting zealot-like up in Chorazin? And so that's one thought of why they're lumped into these cities and the woe. So 
Chorazin was destroyed. It was eventually rebuilt, destroyed by the Arabs. So anyways, just the thought we might have to think about possibly that the city was moving in the direction of the zealots and that, of course, violence and power is not the path to the kingdom of God. So Jesus would have a woe coming. Watch out. If you keep that up, it's not going to end well. So let's go to the woes. First of all, this is number uh, four on the front of your sheet at the bottom. So a woe is, we find them in the Old Testament. It's a prophetic warning. Woe to you. Something is coming. If you don't change your behavior, watch your behavior. That's a woe. Sometimes I think of this passage, I used to think of this passage as like a final judgment. I don't think it's a final judgment. I think it's a warning. If you people in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum don't change, watch your behavior, then judgment will show up. And if you remember from reading Deuteronomy, judgment shows up in the form of a foreign government that comes and oppresses you. So it's a woe, woe to you. There's a prophetic warning. And the response of all the prophets in the Old Testament is repent, change your ways. It's not, uh, the Old Testament is all about Israel going back to their God, not, not, shake, not taking on a new God, turning back to their God. It's a repent, get back on track, because if you're not paying attention, things can go badly. Now, what about our modern idea of repentance? If, when you hear the word repent, what comes to mind? And I know for many people, it's something that looks like this guy. You know, you're somebody on the street corner with a sign shouting at you about repenting, you know, or maybe it's something like this, a guy with a bullhorn shouting to the crowd. And when you think about somebody standing there with a bullhorn shouting to the crowd, who do we assume he's talking to? Do we assume he's talking to those who know Jesus or those who don't? I assume he's talking to those who don't know Jesus. But what if he's talking to the ones who do? What if he's talking to the church leaders? Or like Jesus is, right? He's talking to the religious leaders. So we normally think he's, that they're speaking to the unsaved, and I think our modern-day street preachers are. But what if we assume he's ta they're talking to the rest of us? Hey, come on, church, repent. Let's get back on track, you know, with the nations counting on you, something like that. So... What if he's talking to us? What if that repentance is actually for us to change our ways? Sometimes, here's a great one I found. We think of repentance as like this. You know, it's like a U-turn. We're going in the wrong direction, and then you U-turn back to Jesus. So that's our modern day, the way we think about it. But that's not what's happening there in, the, in, that, in the Matthew passage. This comes later as we think about our walk and turning back to Jesus. So. We just have to think about that whole text a little bit different than maybe we have. Okay, uh, let's do repent. So if you turn on the back of your sheet here, number five, because I want to give you the Hebrew conception of repentance. We'll compare it with the Greek. But it's likely that the Hebrew conception is going on in this story because that's his audience, first century Jewish audience. Later, the New Testament's going to be written in Greek, and then we have a Greek word that's used for repentance. But let's start with the Hebrew. So the Hebrew word, the base verb is shuv. 
and shuva. It's like T shuva. It's a little bit of a T in front of the shuva. Shuva means to turn or return to God. So you're turning. And who are you turning towards? Well, you're returning to God. That's a that's an Old Testament shuv. Uh, the conception is you're on a path. You've strayed off the path for whatever reason. We don't know why. Maybe it was intentional, maybe not. You've gone off the path, and now you're going to return to the path. And so it's a turning, and that's not so much. Now, if we look at the Greek, in, in the Greek, the word for uh, repentance is metanoia, noia being mind, and it means to change your mind. And so that's kind of how I always thought about repentance, is it's a change of mind. Now, hopefully you get change of heart, and you get change of all of your inner being with that as well, but it's change of mind. So you, you might get a little bit of a different conception. As, it, as we roll into the Greek, it's about your mind, and maybe your, it's an intellectual assent. I assent that God is real and Jesus is, is the Messiah. Where Hebrew is more, okay, now turn your behavior, turn your path, walk different now that you do that. A um, little, little bit different conception. Uh, I put on your sheet an, an example of this. This is a great example from Lamentations. I'm just going to read it real quick. So it starts out, you know, of course, Lamentations is lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem, and God's call to the, the prophets were calling them to repent, and they didn't. So then it says this, turn, shuv, that's the word shuv, it's a, it's a verb that means, Lord, you turn us to you. So turn us to you, O Lord, and we will be turned, shuv. That's repentance. It's a, it's a turning. Rather than a full-on U-turn, it's just the turn. And the assumption is, in the Old Testament, you already believe in God. You're just walking incorrectly. And now that I want you to repent, it just means turn and go back to God. Not necessarily complete U-turn, but it could be any kind of turn. All right, that's an example from Lamentations. One example from the New Testament is, of course, John the Baptist. So Luke 3.3, 3, and I have this on your sheet. Uh, he, John the Baptist, went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So his baptism, it's not a conversion. It's not a baptism of conversion, or it's not repentance for conversion. It's repentance. You believers in God are not acting the way you should. You've gone astray. Come through the process of baptism, repent, confess your sins, and change your ways. And when the prophets would show up, people would respond to that prophetic voice and change their ways. But the key is change your ways. Walk a different path. Okay, one example, and this is, uh, this is still under number five because it relates to the Hebrew conception of of not sinning, or I'm sorry, of repentance. So sin, the, the main word for sin, hata, that's the one that's the most commonly used. It means to miss the mark, to go astray. You missed the mark. We all miss the mark. All of us in our walk, we don't walk perfectly. So when you notice that you're not walking perfectly, what do you do? You're, you went off the path. Well, you repent, you turn, you shuv. And you turn 
and return. So if you think of it again in the path metaphor, if you went astray, then you're going to return to the path. And that's, I, I think what, again, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going over this a lot, but I think it, it, the conception is really important that this is what Jesus wants his audience to do. Is you've gone off the you've you've gone astray. Now turn, and uh, but we read it sometimes a little bit differently. Okay, last thing and real quick, and I I know I mentioned this earlier. We always have to remember that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He wants to get the attention of his audience, so he's going to use cities from the Old Testament that they all know and they all think are the worst cities ever, and he's going to compare them to them. So. We just have to recognize that he does speak in hyperbole sometimes to get your attention and make it sound excessive as part of his warning so that you wake up. That's what prophets are supposed to do. So, okay, let's get to the end of this. What did they not do? That's what I think the main point is. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, what's going on? Why is their judgment going to be worse? Because they saw the power of God and they didn't change. And I think when he says this, Jesus says, he began to denounce the towns which most of his miracles has happened, had been performed, and they didn't repent. They didn't change their path. They saw the power of God on display. They loved it when they saw the power of God on display but they're still not changing their path. They believe in God, right? They, they want a Messiah. So woe to you, Chorazin, right? You, you have your synagogue. You have God's words. You saw my miracle, but you still hate your neighbor. Watch out. Woe to you, Bethsaida. You want to make me Messiah, but you won't forgive the Romans, who's also made in the image of God. Watch out. You keep that attitude up, it will end badly for you. So it's like they see the miracles, but they didn't shove, they didn't turn, they didn't stop, change their behavior. You know, you could say, hey, you saw me feed 5,000, you see me feeding the sinners and the tax collectors, but you still isolate people in your own groups, right? You're still, you don't understand the path that God wants you on that brings shalom. So I think it's so much of it is they didn't change after seeing God's power. And so in that sense, what I like to do is say, okay, how does that speak to us? What about us? Could we say woe to us, right? We love salvation. I don't want to pay the penalty for my sins, right? I believe that Jesus can still the storm and hopefully still the storms in my life, but I still don't like the guy sitting next to me in church or I don't like the neighbor, or, you know, I can, I believe that Jesus fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves, but I still worry about what's going to happen next week. Why am I worried? How can I see God act over and over and over in my life and still worry? It's like, do I not get it? And all that worry consumes my energy that I could be putting towards more important things, right? We want to bring the kingdom of God to earth, but we can't forgive the person who voted differently than us. Something like that, right? We hang on to anger, allow it to devolve into bitterness or whatever. 
It's, you saw the power of God. I think of myself in teaching about forgiveness. Woe to you, Scott, if you teach a class on forgiveness and fail to forgive somebody who upset you. Watch out. It's, uh, don't allow that to happen. So I think we can take this lesson, instead of reading it about them, we read it about us. What do we see Jesus and God working in our lives, but we don't change our path? Woe to us, would be the, would be the message. Now, one thing, and I want to finish with this, because how do we do this? How do you walk your entire life always, well, first of all, you have to walk close to Jesus to know where, where you're getting off the path. The closer you follow him, the, the less you'll stray off the path. But the Bible tells us how we can do this. We have to do self-examination. And when we come to the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, sometimes we misinterpret what uh, the ideas about Yom Kippur and being forgiven. The rabbis have an entire 40-day period of self-examination how did my life go this year? Did I offend anybody? Do I need to ask anybody for forgiveness? How can I walk differently next year? God, how have I strayed off the path? It's a full 40 days of contemplation, confession, repentance. Then you ask God for forgiveness. It's not just we show up one day and we're forgiven. And I think we need to live a life, or at least have periods in our life, where we do that too. And here's one verse. I put this on your sheet. It comes from Jeremiah. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. How do we know when we're going astray? This is what we have to let God do. And many people, even Christians, don't want God examining certain parts of their life. We can hide those from God. We can hide them from ourselves. And God says, watch out when you do that, right? Let me examine, sit down on the corner of your bed and just ask yourself, is there anything I need to change in my life? Something will pop up. We all know it. We all know there's something in our life. So we walk very closely with God. We allow God to search the heart and test the mind. And then we make the correction. That's the important thing, is you make the correction so that you can walk closer to Jesus. John. Let me show you one quote. I put, I put it on your sheet. You can read it later. This is from 1 John. John, the gospel, and John, the epistles, never mentions repentance. But he says this. 1 John, it starts in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. But here comes the tough part. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness... We lie and do not live out the truth. So we have the capacity for self-deception. And we, that's why you have to walk close to God and allow God to, to mine our inner being. Then he goes on in verse 8 and 10. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all, right, all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So I think God gives us the tools to walk very closely with him, but it takes all of that introspection and repentance, constantly turning back towards God whenever we find out we've strayed off that path. And I think John here in 1 John 1 is hitting exactly that. Don't deceive yourself by saying there's no sin in there. 
we're all flailing about at some in some regard in this journey. So, okay, I hope that helps. I hope we have to take that word repentance and say, what do we mean by that, right? And look, maybe look at it a little bit differently and then say, okay, now that we've looked at that differently, how can we apply that to our own lives? Like, how can we take this and say, whoa, I don't, I don't want that woe to be for me. I, I love that Jesus walked on the water, but I'm not going to change the path I'm on, right? Something like that. Okay, so let me stop the, the share. <laughs> <laughs>